Part 1 of Chapter 7 of The Abandoned Room This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Bowie The Abandoned Room by Wadsworth Camp Chapter 7 The Amazing Meeting in the Shadows of the Old Courtyard Bobby returned to his bed. He lay there still shivering beneath the heavy blankets. I don't dare, he echoed Graham's words. There's nothing else anyone can say. I must decide what to do. I must think it over. But, as always, thought brought no release. It merely insisted that the case against him was proved. At last he had been seen slipping unconsciously from his room, and at the same hour. All that remained was to learn how he had accomplished the apparent miracles. Then no excuse would remain for not going to Robinson and confessing. The woman at the lake and in the courtyard, the movement of the body and the vanishing of the evidence under his hand, Paradis's odd behavior, all became a disbind, puzzling details that failed to obscure the chief fact. After this, something must be done about Paradis's detention. He hadn't dreamed that his weariness could placate even momentarily such reflections, but at last he slept again. He was aroused by the tramping of men around the house and strange, harsh voices. He raised himself on his elbow and glanced from the window. It had long been daylight. Two burly fellows in overalls, carrying pick and spade across their shoulders, pushed through the underbrush at the edge of the clearing. He turned. Graham, fully dressed, stood at the side of the bed. "'Those men?' Bobby asked wearily. "'The gravediggers,' Graham answered. "'They are going to work in the old cemetery to prepare a place for Silas Blackburn with his fathers.' That's why I've come to wake you up. The minister has telephoned Catherine. He will be here before noon. Do you know it's after ten o'clock? For some time Bobby stared through the window at the desolate, ragged landscape. It was abnormally cold, even for the late fall. Dull clouds obscured the sun and furnished an illusion of crowding earthward. A funeral day. The words slipped into his mind. He repeated them. When your grandfather's buried, Graham answered softly, we'll all feel happier. Why? Bobby asked. It won't lessen the fact of his murder. Time, Graham said, lessens such facts, even for the police. Bobby glanced at him, flushing. You mean you've decided to stand by me after what happened last night? Graham smiled. I've thought it over. I slept like a top last night. I heard nothing. I saw nothing. Ought I to want you to stand by me? Bobby said. Oughtn't I make it a clean breast of it? At least I must do something about parodies. Graham frowned. It's hard to believe he had any connection with your sleepwalking last night. Yet it's as clear as ever that Maria and he are up to some game in which you figure. He shouldn't be in jail, Bobby persisted. Get up, Graham advised. Bathe and have some breakfast. Then we can decide. There's no use talking of the other thing. I've forgotten it. As far as possible, you must. Bobby sprang upright. How can I forget it? If it was hard to face sleep before, what do you think it is now? Have I any right? Don't, Graham said. I'll be with you again tonight. If I were satisfied beyond the shadow of a doubt, I'd advise you to confess. But I can't be until I know what Maria and Paradis are doing. When Bobby had bathed and dressed, he found, in spite of his mental turmoil, that his sleep had done him good. While he breakfasted, Graham urged him to eat, tried to drive from his brain the morbid aftermath of last night's revealing moment. The manager took my advice, but Maria's still missing. Her pictures are in most of the papers. There have been reporters here this morning about the murders. He strolled over and handed Bobby a number of newspapers. 
"'Where's Robinson?' Bobby asked. "'I saw him in the court a while ago. I dare say he's wandering around, perhaps watching the men at the grave.' "'He learned nothing new last night?' "'I was with him at breakfast. I gather not.' Bobby looked up. "'Isn't that an automobile coming through the woods?' he asked. "'Maybe Rollins back from Smithtown, or the minister.' The car stopped at the entrance of the court. They heard the remote tinkling of the front doorbell. Jenkins passed through. The cold air invading the hall and the dining room told them he had opened the door. His sharp exclamation recalled Howell's report, which, at their direction, he had failed to mail. Had his exclamation been drawn by an accuser? Bobby started to rise. Graham moved toward the door. Then Jenkins entered and stood to one side. Bobby shared his astonishment, for Paradis walked in, unbuttoning his overcoat, the former easy-mannered, uncommunicative foreigner. He appeared, moreover, to have slept pleasantly. His eyes showed no weariness, his clothing no disarrangement. He spoke at once, quite as if nothing disagreeable had shattered his departure. "'Good morning. If I had dreamed of this change in the weather, I would have brought a heavier overcoat. I've nearly frozen driving from Smithtown.' Before either man could grope for a suitable greeting, he faced Bobby. He felt in his pockets with whimsical discouragement. "'Fact is, Bobby, I left New York too suddenly. I hadn't noticed until a little while ago. You see, I spent a good deal in Smithtown yesterday.' Bobby spoke with an obvious confusion. "'What do you mean, Carlos? I thought you were—' Grand interrupted with a flat demand for an exclamation. "'How did you get away?' Paradis waved his hand. "'Later, Mr. Graham. There is a hack driver outside who is even more suspicious than you. He wants to be paid.' I asked Rollins to drive me back, but he rushed from the courthouse, probably to telephone his rotund superior. Fact is, this fellow wants five dollars. An outrageous rate. I've told him so. But it doesn't do any good. So will you lend me, Bobby? Bobby handed him a bank note. He didn't grimace Graham's meaning glance. Parodies gave the money to the butler. Pay him, will you, Jenkins? Thanks. He surveyed the remains of Bobby's breakfast and sat down. May I? My breakfast was early, in prison food when you're not in the habit. Bobby tried to account for Paradis' friendly manner. That he should have come back at all was sufficiently strange, but it was harder to understand why he should express no resentment for his treatment yesterday, why he should fail to refer to Bobby's questions at the moment of his arrest, or to the openly expressed enmity of Graham. Only one theory promised to fit at all. It was necessary for the Panamanian to return to the Cedars. His purpose, whatever it was, compelled him to remain for the present in the mournful, tragic house. Therefore, he would crush his justifiable anger. He would make it practically impossible for Bobby to refuse his hospitality. And he had asked for money, only a trifling sum. Yet Graham would grasp at the fact to support his earlier suspicion. Paradis's arrival possessed one virtue. It diverted Bobby's thoughts temporarily from his own dilemma, from his inability to chart a course. Graham, on the other hand, was ill at ease. Beyond a doubt, he was disarmed by Paradis's good humor. For him, yesterday's incident was not so lightly to be passed over. Eventually, his curiosity conquered. The words came, nevertheless, with some difficulty. We scarcely expected you back. His laugh was short and embarrassed. We took it for granted you would find it necessary to stay in Smithtown for a while. Paradis sipped the coffee which Jenkins had poured. Splendid coffee! You should have tasted what I had this morning. Simple enough, Mr. Graham. I telephoned as soon as Rollins got me to the Bastille. I communicated with the lawyer who represents the company for which I once worked. He's a prominent and brilliant man. He planned it with some local fellow. When I was arraigned at the opening of court this morning, the judge could hold me only as a material witness. He fixed a pretty stiff bail, but the local lawyer was there with a bondsman, and I came back. 
My clothes are here. You don't mind, Bobby. That moment in the hall when Graham had awakened him urged Bobby to reply with a genuine warmth. I don't mind. I'm glad you're out of it. I'm sorry you went as you did. I was tired, at my wit's end. Your presence in the private staircase was the last straw. You will forgive us, Carlos. Paradis smiled. He put down his coffee cup and lighted the cigarette. He smoked with a vast contentment. That's better. Nothing to forgive, Bobby. Let us call it a misunderstanding. Graham moved closer. Perhaps you'll tell us now what you are doing in the private staircase. Paradis blew a wreath of smoke. His eyes still smiled, but his voice was harder. Bygones are bygones. Isn't that so, Bobby? Since you wish it, Bobby said. But more important than the knowledge Graham desired loomed the old question. What was the man's game? What held him here? Robinson entered. The flesh around his eyes was puffier than it had been yesterday. Worry had increased the incongruous discontent of his round face. Clearly he had slept little. I saw you arrive, he said. Rollins warned me. But I must say I didn't think you'd use your freedom to come to us. Paradis laughed. Since the law won't hold me at your convenience in Smithtown, I keep myself at your service here, if Bobby permits it. Could you ask more? Bobby shrank from the man with whom he had idled away so much time and money. That fleeting, satanic impression of yesterday came back, sharper and more alarming. Paradis' clear challenge to the district attorney was the measure of his strength. His mind was subtler than theirs. His reserve and easy daring mastered them all, and always, as now, he laughed at the futility of their efforts to sound his purposes, to limit his freedom of action. Bobby didn't care to meet the uncommunicative eyes whose depths he had never been able to explore. Was there a special power there that could control the destinies of other people, that might make men walk unconsciously to accomplish the ends of an unscrupulous brain? The district attorney appeared as much at sea as the others. Thanks, he said dryly to Paradis. And glancing at Bobby, he asked with a hollow scorn, You've no objection to the gentleman visiting you for the present? If he wishes, Bobby answered, a trifle amused at Robinson's obvious fancy of a collusion between Paradis and himself. Robinson jerked his head toward the window. I've been watching the preparations out there. I guess when he's laid away you'll be thinking about having the will read. No hurry, Bobby answered with a quick intake of breath. I suppose not, Robinson sneered, since everybody knows well enough what's in it. Bobby arose. Robinson still sneered. You'll be at the grave, as chief mourner? Bobby walked from the room. He hadn't cared to reply. He feared, as it was, that he had let slip his increased self-doubt. He put on his coat and hat and left the house. The raw cold, the year's first omen of winter, made his blood run quicker, forced into his mind a cleansing simulation. But almost immediately even that prophylactic was denied him. With his direction a matter of indifference, chance led him into the thicket at the side of the house. He had walked some distance. The underbrush had long interposed a veil between him and the cedars above, whose roofs smoke wreathed in the still air like fantastic figures weaving a shroud to lower over the time-stained, melancholy walls. For once he was grateful to the forest because it had forbidden him to glance perpetually back at that dismal and pensive picture. Then he became aware of twigs hastily lopped off, of bushes bent and torn, of the uncovering, through these careless means of an old path. Simultaneously there reached his ears the scraping of metal implements in the soft soil, the dull thud of earth falling regularly. He paused, listening. The labor of the men was given an uncouth rhythm by their grunting expulsions of breath. Otherwise the nature of their industry and its surroundings had imposed upon them a silence, 
in itself beast-like and unnatural. At last a harsh voice came to Bobby. Its brevity pointed the previous dumbness of the speaker. Deep enough! And Bobby turned and hurried back along the roughly restored path, as if fleeing from an immaterial thing suddenly quickened with the power of accusation. He could picture the fresh oblong excavation in the soil of the family burial ground. He could see where the men had had to tear bushes from among the graves in order to insert their tools. There was an ironical justice in the condition of the old cemetery. He had received no internment since the death of Catherine's father. Like everything about the cedars, Silas Blackburn had delivered it to the swift obliterating fingers of time. If the old man in his selfishness had paused to gaze beyond the inevitable fact of death, Bobby reflected, he would have guarded with a more precious interest in the drapings of his final sleep. This necessary task on which Bobby had stumbled had made the thicket less congenial than the house. As he walked back, he forecasted with a keen apprehension his approaching ordeal. It would, doubtless, be more difficult to endure than Howell's experiment over Silas Blackburn's body in the old room. Could he witness the definite imprisonment of his grandfather in a narrow box? Could he watch the covering earth fall noisily in that bleak place of silence without displaying for Robinson the guilt that impressed him more and more? A strange man appeared, walking from the direction of the house. His black clothing, relieved only by narrow edges of white cuffs between the sleeves and the heavy morning gloves, fitted with solemn harmony into the landscape and Bobby's mood. Such a figure was appropriate to the cedars. Bobby stepped to one side, placing a screen of dead foliage between himself and the man whose profession it was to mourn. He emerged from the forest and saw again the leisurely weaving of the smoke shroud above the house. Then his eyes were drawn by the restless movements of a pair of horses, standing in the shafts of a black wagon at the court entrance, and his ordeal became like a vast morass in which offers no likely path, yet whose crossing is the price of salvation. He was glad to see Graham leave the court and hurry toward him. I was coming to hunt you out, Bobby. The minister's arrived. So has Dr. Groom. Everything's about ready. Dr. Groom? Yes, he used to see a good deal of your grandfather. It's natural enough he should be here. Bobby agreed indifferently. They walked slowly back to the house. Graham made it plain that his mind was far from the sad business ahead. What do you think of Paradis coming back as if nothing were wrong? he asked. He ignores what happened yesterday. He settles himself in the cedars again. I don't know what to think of it, Bobby answered. This morning Carlos gave me the creeps. Graham glanced at him curiously. He spoke with pronounced deliberation, startling Bobby. For this friend expressed practically the thought that Paradis' arrival had driven into his own mind. Gave me the creeps, too. Makes me sure than ever that he has abnormally deep purpose in using his wits to hang on here. He suggests resources as hard to understand as anything that has happened in the old room. You'll confess, Bobby. He's had a good deal of influence over you. An influence for evil? I'd like to go around with him, if that's what you mean. Isn't he the cause of the last two or three months' nonsense in New York? I won't blame Carlos for that, Bobby muttered. He influenced you against your better judgment, Graham persisted, to refuse to leave with me the night of your grandfather's death. Maria did her share, Bobby said. He broke off, looking at Graham. What are you driving at? I've been asking myself since he came back, Graham answered, if there's any queer power behind his quiet manner. Maybe he is psychic. Maybe he can do things we don't understand. I've wondered if he had, without your knowing it, acquired sufficient influence to direct your body when your mind no longer controlled it. It's a nasty thought, but I've heard of such things. You mean Carlos may have made me go to the hall last night, perhaps sent me to the old room those other times? 
Now that another had expressed the idea, Bobby fought it with all his might. No, I won't believe it. I've been weak, Hartley, but not that weak. And I tell you, I did feel Howell's body move under my hand. Don't misunderstand me, Graham said gently. I must consider every possibility. You were excited and imaginative when you went to the old room to take the evidence. It was a shock to have your candle go out. Your own hand, reaching out to Howell's, might have moved spasmodically. I mean, you may have been responsible for the thing without realizing it. In the disappearance of the evidence, Bobby defended himself. If it had been stolen earlier, the coat pocket might have retained its bulging shape. We know now that Paradis is capable of sneaking around the house. No, no, Bobby said hotly. You're trying to take away my one hope. But I was there, and you weren't. I know with my own senses what happened, and you don't. Paradis has no such influence over me. I won't think of it. If it's so far-fetched, Graham asked quietly, why do you revolt from the idea? Bobby turned on him. And why do you fill my mind with such thoughts? If you think I'm guilty, say so. Go tell Robinson so. He glanced away while the angry color left his face. He was a little dazed by the realization that he had spoken to Graham as he might have done to an enemy, as he had spoken to Howells in the old bedroom. He felt the touch of Graham's hand on his shoulder. I'm only working in your service, Graham said kindly. I'm sorry if I've troubled you by seeking physical facts in order to escape the ghosts. For Groom has brought the ghosts back with him. Don't make any mistake about that. You want the truth, don't you? Yes, Bobby said, even if it does for me. But I want it quickly. I can't go on this way, indefinitely. Yet that flash of temper had given him courage to face the ordeal. A lingering resentment at Graham's suggestion lessened the difficulty of his position. Entering the court, he scarcely glanced at the black wagon. There were more dark-clothed men in the hall. Rollins had returned. From the rug in front of the fireplace, he surveyed the group with a bland curiosity. Robinson sat nearby, glowering at Paradis. The Panamanian had changed his clothing. He, too, was somberly dressed, and instead of the vivid necktie he had worn from the courthouse, a jet-black scarf was perfectly arranged beneath his collar. He lounged opposite the district attorney, his eyes studying the fire, his fingers on the chair arm were restless. Dr. Groom stood at the foot of the stairs, talking with the clergyman, a stout and unctuous figure. Bobby noticed that the great stolid form of the doctor was ill at ease. From his thickly bearded face his reddish eyes gleamed forth with a fresh instability. The clergyman shook hands with Bobby. We need not delay. Your cousin is upstairs. He included the company in a circling turn of the head. Anyone who cares to go... Bobby forced himself to walk up the staircase, facing the first phase of his ordeal. He saw that the district attorney realized that too, for he sprang from his chair and, followed by Rollins, started upward. The entire company crowded the stairs. At the top, Bobby found Paradis at his side. Carlos, why do you come? I would like to be of some comfort, Paradis answered gravely. His fingers on the banister made that restless groping motion. Graham summoned Catherine. One of the black-clothed men opened the door of Silas Blackburn's room. He stepped aside, beckoning. He had an air of a showman craving approbation for the surprise he had arranged. Bobby went in with the others. Automatically through the dim light he catalogued remembered objects, all intimate to his grandfather, each oddly entangled in his mind with his dislike of the old man. The iron bed, the chest of drawers, scratched and with broken handles, the closed colonial desk, the miserly rag carpet, all seemed mutely asking, as Bobby did, why their owner had deserted them the other night and delivered himself to the ghostly mystery of the old bedroom. Reluctantly, 
Bobby's glance went to the center of the floor where the casket rested on trestles. From the chest of drawers, two candles, the only light, played wanly over the still figure and the ashen face. So for the second time the living met the dead, and the law watched hopefully. Robinson stood opposite, but he didn't look at Silas Blackburn, who could no longer accuse. He stared instead at Bobby, and Bobby kept repeating to himself, I didn't do this thing. I didn't do this thing. End of chapter 7, section 1. Recording by Alex Bowie. Woodbridge, Virginia.